Welcome to Golden Beer Talks. Woo! Thank you for coming on this lovely evening. What a wonderful group. What a wonderful crowd. We have some music in the background. Can we kill that, guys? Great. We are going to, as always, begin and end with gratitude. So we want to start with our friends here at the Windy Saddle. They pack us in here. They uh, ignore the fire marshal <laughs> on our behalf. And they make sure that we have something to eat and drink. And we are really grateful. Thank you very much, guys. We are very grateful to Greg Reed. He's a local musician who lends us his equipment so that we can broadcast here. But we also record all of this. And it's um, put up on our website as a podcast if you happen to miss one or you want to hear it again. That is always on our goldenbeertalks.org website. We are also deeply grateful to goldentoday.com for promoting all the well-being of our community as well as this event. So if you haven't checked out their website and signed up for the email newsletters that you can get from goldentoday.com, that is strongly recommended. And I'm going to start with introducing James, who is a guest from one of our new local establishments, Colorado Plus. They make beer and they make cider. Maybe you've had a chance to sample some of it this evening. He's going to talk about what we are looking at for our tastings tonight, and then he's going to hand off to Barb. So welcome to James. Thank you, everyone. Good evening. So I am the head brewer and zymologist, which is basically a fancy word for somebody who ferments stuff for both uh, C+. And C plus 49. C plus 49 is our cidery that we just opened about six months ago. Uh, so tonight what I brought was one of our house ciders, which is called Yellowbird. It is about 6.5% ABV, and it is American dry cider that we dry hop with a uh, blend of hops called Falconer's Flight. Um, typically, it's also known as Seven Seas because it has seven sea-named hops, but very citrus forward on that. Uh, it helps also dry out. The nice thing about dry hopping a cider versus using hops in beer is it's all about aroma. So you're getting all of that. Uh, you're getting a little bit of resin, a little bit of woodiness out of the hops. You're getting that citrus note as opposed to what most people think when they think hops, which is bitter. So that's about the cider side of things. Now, the beer that I decided to bring is called Skald, which is... Uh, Nordic for poet, and which works really well for this type of beer because when I came up with the concept, it was all about taking one beer and kind of moving it down in different ways and telling a story with it. So we took inspiration from what's going on with ancient Nordic brewing and modern Nordic brewing, which is locally sourced ingredients. So we work with several maltsters within Colorado to bring locally sourced malts. We also work with a hop uh, farmer in Paonia to bring local hops. And then we use local honey from Clark's Honey on this one. And uh, we do a little something different, which unfortunately I haven't found a local source with, which is rose hips, which was a traditional bittering in uh, old Nordic ales. And then finally we use a, what really makes it this Nordic style is the yeast, which is called quick yeast. And what's kind of fun about this yeast is traditionally you normally see fermentation temperatures at about 18 to 20 C. 
this uh, yeast actually really likes a much higher temperature, which is about 30 C, which is a significant uh, increase in temperature for yeast. Most yeast can't actually survive at this temperature. Uh, and when they, if they do, you start picking off several off flavors, where this one actually produces a lovely orange note. So other than that, I will hand it off, and I hope you guys enjoy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. Hi, all. I am introducing my husband, Frank Blaha, who is a professional engineer. He's an environmental engineer, and therefore he has a strong interest in public health. And he has a master's from in civil and environmental engineering from University of Wisconsin-Madison, and a bachelor's from Northwestern University, and he's a professional engineer in Colorado. As part of his education, the issue of communicable diseases was front and center, where reading included books like John Snow's On the Mode of Communication of Cholera and Rats, Lice, and History. This background partly explains an interest in the great influenza of 1918, but another key driver was his father, who was a survivor of the flu. Frank works at the Water Research Foundation, a nonprofit organization focused on advancing the science of water, where he has been employed for 22 years. And I just want to add that in addition to the works that he mentioned in his written introduction, the other things that accumulate on our headboard are plagues and people, gun, germs, and steel, control of communicable diseases in man, disease and history, in the wake of the plague, and lately it's been added by added to well, lately we have added America's forgotten pandemic pandemic 1918 and doctors diseases and dying <laughs> my husband frank blaha all right thank you very much uh, thank you all for coming and i hope that i can provide some useful information to you uh, and this is uh, November 2018, and we were talking about our lineup of speakers probably last December or January, and we didn't have a speaker for November. And I said, well, we should get someone on, like, World War I or the great influenza pandemic. And um, Whitney, wherever Whitney is, she kind of looked at me and said, you know, can you do one of those? And I said, yeah, I'll talk about the flu. <laughs> and so here I am. And I am right now suffering from that... Uh, statement that always comes to me whenever I have to give the presentation that I uh, committed to giving, and that is, my God, what have I done? <laughs> so, uh, November 2018, it's 100 years after the end of World War I, and I'm going to hazard that many of you, probably every one of you, has heard a lot about the 100th anniversary of World War I. The armistice was signed on November 11th, 1918, so that was last Sunday. Maybe a lot of you were here in Golden when they opened this time capsule at City Council Chambers slash the museum slash not really, but they did it earlier, but they had a video of it. It was hugely crowded. A lot about World War I. But it's also the 100th anniversary, basically, of the pandemic, the 1918 influenza pandemic, which was the most deadly disease known to man and sheer numbers of people killed. And um, I am here, uh, a major reason I'm here, a key reason I'm here, is because of my father's experience with uh, the influenza. Uh, he very much remembered the great influenza pandemic. He was sick with it. Uh, he was born in 1907, so he was 10 or 11 years old when he had it. And he was sick for a long time. And I wish I had asked him what that really meant, because 
I was, I was a kid when he was telling me this, so I figured, oh, well, he must have been sick for a week. I mean, could you imagine being in bed for a week? But it might have been a month because people were laid up that long with the influenza if they didn't die. And he didn't. Um, but he certainly remembered uh, being extremely sick, being you know feverish and hallucinating. And he said that he was in so much pain that he thought he was going to die, and he was in so much pain that he really wanted to die. But he lived, and then in later years he did develop Parkinson's disease, and he commented to me a number of times that there was a relationship between the influenza and Parkinson's, at least in his mind. And he also had a, a brother that was sick with the flu who also lived, and that brother died relatively young, and my father conjectured many times that he, he wondered if there wasn't a tie between his brother's early death and the great influenza pandemic and, and you know, symptoms from the flu. Um, he very much remembered. He talked about how there, was an there were all sorts of dead people all over, and I wish I had asked him just what was it that he noted. Because, again, he's a kid, 10 or 11, so it must have been fairly substantial that he remembered this increased death rate and he also talked about, you know, what, what would amount to societal disruption. So uh, it was certainly an event that he remembered. It wasn't top of mind uh, for his life, but uh, it was something that came to mind a lot. And he frequently commented on how little it was talked about, how little it seemed to be remembered, how it was sort of a forgotten thing. So at times in my life, I have felt like I owned this epidemic. Uh, you know, uh, and, and so when, I was, when it was covered briefly for maybe like three or four or five minutes in one of my public health classes, I was like, wow, you know, there's so much more to learn about this. And so, uh, and since I like to learn, I agreed to give this talk. And so here we are to take a, a little deeper dive into the great influenza. Um, and this could just be a Halloween tale, but I want to put this into a, a, a little broader perspective than simply the increased numbers of sick people, the increased numbers of death, the lack of undertakers to handle all of the bodies, the lack of coffins, the need in some cities to go to mass graves, and in fact in Philadelphia where they had a much higher death rate than a lot of the other cities in the United States, they were really close if they didn't actually sort of have societal breakdown. And they really did have guys in horse-drawn wagons asking people to bring out the dead. So, you know, maybe that came from Philadelphia and the great influenza pandemic in a Monty Python's Holy Grail. Um, but this is actually a richer story than just all of the macabre stuff because uh, I think that a lot, a large part of the story is the tie of this influenza to 19, or to, to, the, uh, to World War I, uh, to this term that we now have of fake news, uh, to propaganda, to thought control, and uh, also some of the local impacts. So I, I hope to cover all of that. I've got 25 minutes or so. So, But Whitney has uh, informed me that she doesn't have a golf ball to bean me if I go over. So we might be good. Um, it is good to have visual aids. You know, I went to a training class with some of my brethren that are here at this table that I work with. And so I, I did try to get uh, a 1918 dead guy, but no one wanted to provide me one. Uh, we spent a little time trying to create one with a mannequin from work, and that also didn't work out. Uh, but I do have some visual aids, so I, I will hopefully uh, introduce those at an appropriate time. So, 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. We've heard about it, right? You know, uh, Armistice Day, November 11th. Uh, if you go to Wikipedia, 
you're going to find that uh, the Wikipedia estimate of total deaths from World War I was about 16 million. Nine million combatants, so soldiers, sailors, etc., that died, and then about 7 million civilians. So 17 million deaths, but if you're an engineer, you know you can round things a lot. So let's just make it a nice round 20 million dead from World War I. Total deaths associated with the influenza, uh, kind of the most frequently cited number right now is 50 million. Uh, the estimates vary from 21 million to 100 million, so you will find 100 million. Uh, these are all estimates. Uh, you know, there wasn't good records kept in, you know, major parts of the globe, especially places that were undergoing revolution at the time, like Russia, kind of a big place. Um, the, some of the first estimates of the death rate was 21 million. That was in the 1920s, and they uh, revised it up because they have found that, you know, there were many areas where it was much more virulent. There were a lot more deaths associated with it where there were issues like you know, societal disruption, where there was poor nutrition, where there was a lot of crowding, a lack of housing. So all of those areas that were um, in uproar at the end of World War I uh, would have been subject to higher death rates or probably higher death rates. And it was quite variable anyway. Uh, and I have to have notes, because otherwise too much stuff is going to bleed in and we won't get out, here out of here tonight. So. 20 million dead from World War I over the course of four years, because that war lasted a little over four years, August 1914 to November 1918. 50 million dead from the pandemic, which lasted about one year, spring of 1918 to spring of 1919. However, that uh, pandemic, the highest death rate was in the fall, September, October, and November, and December of 1918. So four months of 1918, when about half of all of the deaths, if not more, occurred from the great influenza. So if it was 50 million that died, about 25 million died in those four months, compared with 20 million over the course of four years for World War I. So everyone remembers World War I, but there's not a lot of uh, memory of the great influenza. And it was a major, massively bad event for mankind, just like World War I. And by the sheer numbers, it's, it was worse. Uh, the CDC estimates that the U.S. deaths from the great influenza were 675,000 across the U.S., and our dead in World War I were 116,000 more or less. Um, however, of that 116,000, about 63,000 were due to, to disease, and probably a fair number of those were due to the influenza. So five times the death rate from the war from the influenza. Um, it is considered the most deadly disease. Uh, the Black Death killed a greater proportion of the population, at least in places like Europe, 25 or 30 percent. But in total numbers, the Great Influenza was more deadly. About 10 percent death rate of those people that got the Great Influenza, as opposed to about 50 percent with the Black Death back in the 14th century. Unlike normal flu, which tends to uh, target the very young and the very old, those are the primary death rates from typical flu, uh, the great influenza was very different in that a major part of its target, about half of all of the deaths, were young adults, like people in their late teens, 20s, and 30s. And a lot of those people uh, died from, uh, basically, it's considered an overreaction of their immune system, and basically their lungs were filling up with fluid as their body was trying to fight this infection, and they basically suffocated. And so one of the terms that was used for this uh, disease was also uh, the Purple Death, because people would start to turn blue as they were basically suffocating. 
uh, and that was one of the more um, quick forms of dying from the disease. A lot of people also died from secondary infections, so they'd be laid low by the influenza but actually die of pneumonia. That was one of the most common ones, but there are also other secondary infections. Um, but it, it very much targeted the young and the healthy adult population, and that was highly unusual, and of course those were the people filling the trenches. And that is also a major part of this uh, whole story. Uh, the influenza was considered to have three waves. So there was a, a spring wave in 1918, spring and summer of 1918. It was not as contagious. It was not as deadly. That wave was followed by the very significant fall wave, basically September through December, which was extremely contagious and was much more deadly. And then there was, a, again, a smaller wave in the spring of 1919, that infected a number of uh, different people, including some people conjecture that's what actually laid Wilson low at Versailles during some of the uh, peace treaty discussions. Um, it kind of lingered around until 1920 when it, it basically, you know, uh, uh, finally faded away. But that strain of flu was a predominant flu through most of the 20th century up to about 1957 when it was replaced by another significantly different strain of flu. And, of course, these are viruses, and the viruses can change. And so some people, not everyone, think that there were some changes in the flu in those three waves of uh, infection associated with it. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about public health in the flu. Uh, as the flu was noted to be uh, prevalent, there was an increased demand for doctors and nurses, and they were, of course, in shorter supply, especially in the United States, because a lot of them had already gone over to Europe, because that was the focus of all of our efforts, was fighting World War I, and this uh, sort of thinking came right from the top from Woodrow Wilson. So we were very focused on uh, engaging in World War I, fighting the war, and very little else was on our minds. So relatively few measures were made to not have troops being moved all over, so men were being shipped all over, even though there was this flu outbreak. Uh, there were sometimes some uh, relatively minimal uh, actions taken, you know, like, hey, everyone's fine now, so we'll ship them, and then by the time they get, you know, get shipped from Denver to Boston, by the time they get there, men are sick. So there weren't good quarantine measures. Um, nurses were highly effective uh, in addressing the flu because there wasn't any good, um, you know, cure for the flu at the time. So doctors were helpful, but the nurses were as helpful as doctors because there were many reports of people, like whole families would get sick, no one would be around to be able to get water to the people because it was very debilitating. People would be laid up in bed for a long time, basically unable to move, and so there were reports from here, there, and everywhere of families where everybody died because they starved to death or they didn't get any water, and there was uh, a lot of symptoms of vomiting associated with the flu as well. So people would become dehydrated and die. So nurses were in very high demand, uh, and there were calls put out for uh, people with medical training or nursing training, you know, that, that had retired or that weren't currently practicing to come help with uh, the flu, but relatively minimal. In terms of public health measures, uh, because the government was so focused on World War I, public health measures were also relatively minimal, just like in uh, our uh, wartime forces. So uh, the flu was frequently downplayed. 
the government wanted to keep the focus on winning World War I. That was a big idea, and it would appear that most societies can only have one really big idea at a time. So, you know, we're going to go to the moon. In this case, we were going to win World War I. So they didn't want people to start to worry about the flu, to start to think that, you know, they're going to be impacted, that their city is going to be uh, subject to this uh, outbreak. And so it was downplayed, sometimes ridiculed in, uh, you know, let's say the media of the time, which was pre-television and pre-radio. So it's mostly the papers and a lot of public speaking. Um, meanwhile, while all of that was going on, because the main focus is World War I, and this is kind of a U.S.-centric story here, uh, there was plenty of publicity about the war. You know, we're fighting in Bellow Wood, and this is a mostly American battle, and we're winning it, even though there were lots of guys sick with the flu at the time, uh, even in Bellow Wood. And there was certainly a lot of information about the need to buy war bonds so that we could fund the war effort. And so I did put some visual aids out, Get dead guys, but I did put together a few visual aids. So each of these tables should have at least one of these little handouts. Uh, I have a picture that is relatively iconic of uh, the influenza, and that's a traffic cop in, I believe, New York City wearing a gauze mask, which was sort of the uh, main symbol of the flu because a lot of cities, Denver was one, instituted a, a masking requirement on people that were going out in public or going to any sort of meetings if the meetings weren't completely um, uh, prohibited. And uh, what I really like about this picture, what I think is so iconic about it, is we've got this cop, you know, apparently directing traffic. He's out in the road right by a little standard with a couple of signs on it. And two of the signs are about buying war bonds. So you got to go buy war bonds. And then there's another one uh, that's about lending. Because, of course, in buying war bonds, we're lending the government money to fund the war. So there was a lot of information about buying war bonds. In fact, another visual aid is up here. There's this two-volume study on the history of Colorado, Colorado and its people, from 1948, from the head of the Colorado Historical Society at the time. They have a, a lengthy chapter on World War I, that time period for the state of Colorado. Never mentions the flu, but at the bottom of this little visual aid on all of the tables are all of the statistics about how Colorado performed in buying war bonds. We always exceeded our quota. That's what was important about World War I for Colorado uh, in this particular history book, not all the people that died of the influenza. So a couple of visual aids. And I put on these visual aids this term slacker, because that was the term at the time that you didn't want to be called. If you didn't buy war bonds or you didn't buy enough war bonds, you might be termed a slacker. And that was a very bad term at the time, and so people wanted to avoid it. So I'm conjecturing that Colorado was not a slacker state because we exceeded our quotas each and every time if you look at those details. All right. So what about freedom of expression in association with the flu and the war? I mean, so... I'm saying that there was sort of this um, thought control. And in some regards, you know, you might say fake news that was going on at the time. So we entered the war in April 1917. And once we were in the war, there was a major effort to suppress any criticism or questioning of the war. It, it was really amazing what was going on at the time. And it was to the point that people were sent to jail uh, for not being, if you will, sufficiently patriotic. There was one gentleman... Uh, that was uh, sent to jail in Montana 
because he questioned the food regulations at the time. He said they were, quote, a complete joke, and he went to jail for saying that. So it, it was pretty severe. Uh, and it did start with Woodrow Wilson. He really wanted to keep people focused on winning World War I. In many regards, he felt there was a big price uh, in our entering the war, so he really wanted to make sure that we were going to win. About a week after we entered the war, Wilson, by uh, executive order, created the Committee on Public Information. And the Committee on Public Information was headed up by George Creel, and George Creel has some local ties. He had worked for the Rocky Mountain News. He had worked for the Denver Post. And in 1912, he was made the police commissioner of Denver. And Creel was, you know, he was primarily, uh, you know, like journalist, that sort of uh, walk of life. And so he was formulating the CPI. And this was a propaganda agency acting to release government news, to sustain U.S. morale, to promote voluntary press censorship. And that was big and important to him. He was concerned there would be forced censorship like uh, Britain had, like Germany had, um, uh, and to help sell war bonds and also to promote victory gardens and other efforts that would help us win the war. So Creel created 37 divisions and most notably the Four Minute Men Division. So the Four Minute Men, which by the end of the war had about 75,000 civilian volunteers who had spoken to about uh, to over 300 million people uh, over the course of those 18 or so months of the war, uh, they came and they gave four-minute talks at, like, movie houses, at any public gathering. You know, if there was a dance, they'd get up in the middle of the dance, you know, when, when people were taking a break and give their little four-minute spiel. It had to be four minutes because that was considered the attention span of humans. So I thank you for all paying attention so far. And it was also the amount of time to change a movie reel at uh, movie theaters, so four-minute men, and they were to have facts and stuff, but they were to you know, promote these uh, messages from the government. Again, no radio, no television. So it was papers, and it was people speaking publicly. Um, government also created the American Protection League. This one you got to like. It was an adjunct to the Justice Department, and it was reporting to the Bureau of Investigation, which was basically the precursor to the FBI. The American Protection League were badged volunteers that were to help with counterintelligence and identifying non-patriotic behavior. Uh, by the end of the war, they had 250,000 volunteers in 600 cities that were part of the American Protection League. And they were reporting to an agency that had a few hundred agents in it at the time. So clearly, there could not be real good control of the league members. And so they were out bullying people into buying war bonds, questioning had you bought a war bond. If you hadn't, why not? If you have bought war bonds, can you, Fred, afford to buy more? Why don't you buy more? You need to buy until it hurts. So keep buying war bonds. And they were rooting out unpatriotic or anything that was considered to be sort of uh, detrimental to the war. So talking about the great influenza, could be sort of detrimental. It might get people upset and worried about that their husband might die of the flu or their wife and might die of the flu and the eight kids are going to all be on the husband's hands. That, that would be quite a burden. So uh, they, uh, American Protective League, uh, there was a newspaper in Wisconsin in late September 1918 that reported a little too openly about the great influenza and it was reported to the American Protective League and they paid the paper a visit. 
And they did this. They sometimes took action through the courts, the league members, but they sometimes took more direct action. And so there were many um, allegations of league members, you know, beating up folk on the street, stuff like that. Uh, so they, they uh, uh, were an interesting group, uh, rooting out unpatriotic behavior and looking for spies. And they, had, they were left a lot on their own, so they were kind of doing it uh, the way they thought was appropriate. Uh, that group was uh, disbanded in March 1919 when we got a new attorney general, and he considered the league to be sort of a dangerous group, and so he disbanded it. And some of those uh, like local chapters and some of the local people wound up forming some uh, portions of the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s and the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, the feds also passed the Espionage Act of 1917, and then that was followed in uh, May 1918 by the Sedition Act. And in the Sedition Act, well, both of those had uh, fines and prison terms associated with being found guilty of espionage or sedition. Now, the Sedition Act was pretty interesting. There was an earlier Sedition Act in 1798, with John Adams, and that was uh, a major cost for John Adams, maybe cost him uh, being reelected president. Uh, but the Sedition Act of 1918 uh, had, I actually have much of the text here in one of my uh, other visual aids, but one could not utter, print, write, or publish any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the government of the United States, our armed forces, the flag, the uniform of the United States, and miscellaneous other things. And the interesting thing was, even if what you said was true, it could be in violation of the Sedition Act. And so again, people went to jail for violation of the Sedition Act, and there were many states that passed uh, Sedition Acts, uh, and some of them were more aggressive than the federal one. Um, so thought control and a lot of propaganda, and it's all focused on World War I. So, uh, turning to local stories and local impacts and a few more visual aids. Uh, Catherine Ann Porter was a reporter with the Rocky Mountain News in 1918. And in 1939, she published a short novel called Pale Horse, Pale Rider. And this is basically an autobiographical description of her experience with the flu. What goes on in this 67-page uh, novel, in this collection of three short novels by her, is um, she gets up and she's going to work. You know, She doesn't call it the Rocky Mountain News, but she goes to work at the newspaper, and there's people from the League that are there to talk to her about buying war bonds. And she's trying to figure out, can I afford to buy more war bonds to get these guys off my back? And she kind of goes through a day or two uh, where almost every thought throughout the day is dominated by World War I. And every once in a while it's like, oh, I hope I don't get the flu, but that, that's a thing in Boston. That's going on on the East Coast. It's, it's nothing, you know, here. Jeez, uh, can I afford another five bucks to buy war bonds uh, from my paycheck? Um, and then she goes, she winds up getting sick, and she goes into a many multi-page description of being sick with the flu for over a month, and then she uh, eventually, first she's sick, you know, like at home. And her uh, boyfriend, who's in the military, but he happens to be on leave, he's taking care of her. She eventually winds up in a hospital. She eventually recovers from the flu. And when she's back to being herself and past all of these, uh, you know, dreams and all of the um, uh, hallucinations, 
she's back to the living, you might say, and she learns, one, World War I has ended, and two, her boyfriend had gotten sick with the flu and died. And that's exactly what happened to Catherine Ann Porter. And she had one other significant lifelong thing. In the course of having the flu, her hair turned all white, and her hair remained white for the rest of her life. So she didn't get married to this guy that she was intending to marry. He was her fiancé, and then she wound up with white hair. So pale horse, pale rider. Uh, and it, it's talking about stuff here in you know this area, Denver, because uh, that's where she was living at the time. And there was uh, plenty of information about buying war bonds and being focused on World War I. So for Colorado, some of the first deaths in Colorado were in uh, late September of 1918. Um, on Monday, October 7th, the State Board of Health and the governor uh, issued an executive order asking for voluntary measures from people basically to uh, avoid public meetings. Uh, and it asked all of the press to advise citizens of um, you know, the need to uh, take proper actions to avoid passing the flu on to other people. So in, in particular, was sort of distancing yourselves from others and minimizing public meetings. Um, and they were also asking uh, that public places be closed voluntarily. But uh, the numbers of deaths and, and illness from the influenza certainly continued to increase, especially in Denver, which is, of course, our state capital. And so on Wednesday, October 16th, the governor proclaimed all public and private gatherings were prohibited across the state. In addition, the Board of Health was asked to press, uh, asked the press to issue requests for physicians and nurses to report uh, to the U.S. Public Health Service or the Red Cross, and they asked for the Public Health Service uh, to provide aid to the state. Um, for Colorado, based on 1915 statistics, the estimated normal deaths from influenza for the last four months of 1918 should have been on the order of 580 deaths. These were estimates made in the early 1920s. And as we went forward, uh, we certainly um, suffered through a massive wave of the influenza in late 1918. Our actual deaths in the state of Colorado from influenza and pneumonia in those four months, as opposed to the estimated 580, were 5,808. So about 10 times as many deaths from the influenza. Um, in the interest of time, I'll, I'll skip talking in much detail about Denver. Uh, but Denver was an interesting story because they first had voluntary measures, then they restricted all public meetings, then they lifted the ban, then there was another outbreak uh, of the flu, so they wanted to reinstitute uh, no public meetings, you know, and, and um, uh, uh, you know, separation of people from each other, but there was an uproar now because they'd already done that for a few weeks, so the uh, uh, mayor and this committee for the city of Denver uh, instituted a gauze mask requirement, you know, this iconic symbol of the influenza. And then there were still people in an uproar about that, so they changed the rules for the gauze masks. And then there were still people that were unhappy, so then they changed the rules again, by which point most people were just confused about the whole thing. And pretty soon by uh, January, the influenza was starting to die down in Denver. And so by January 2nd, uh, schools were back in session for Denver, and uh, all of those restrictions were lifted. Well, let's talk about Golden. So there's good coverage of Golden, and I do have a visual aid here, I think somewhere, but I seem to have lacked it. Hmm? 
Yeah, so the recent issue of Historically Jeffco has got, has got about a four-page article in it by Rick Gardner from here in Golden uh, on the influenza in Golden. So if you're interested in learning specifically about individual people that died and some of the measures that were taken here in, in a little bit more detail, uh, pretty good article. This is available from the county and over near the courthouse uh, for free. They had lots of copies last week when I got this one. Um, so uh, uh, Rick Gardner's article on the uh, influenza pandemic in Golden. Uh, so there's pretty good coverage of, of it in, in that article. Uh, Golden instituted a meeting ban, so a public meeting ban and closing of you know the uh, uh, pool halls, the movie houses, uh, no more dances, all of that. Uh, in accordance with, or, or if you will, the day after Denver instituted a meeting ban. So Denver's meeting ban went into effect on uh, Sunday, October 6th. So on Monday, October 7th, and some of the golden people were at these discussions down in Denver talking about the situation in Denver. So uh, on Monday, October 7th, Golden instituted a meeting ban a bit earlier than most because the governor hadn't yet decreed anything uh, required. Governor didn't decree until October 16th. But um, we instituted this meeting ban, and uh, we were also aware of an early advisory that had come out from the governor and others in late September, and so we were following recommendations from that. The golden requirements were using many of the same words and requirements that were part of the Denver ban, and in many ways I'd say we followed Denver's lead in all of this, except, uh, except uh, apparently the gauze mask part. Uh, and so there was not a strict quarantine of the city. Uh, there were, uh, the sick people were to be quarantined in their homes and you weren't to come in and go out of those homes where there were sick people until the victim was well. I'm sorry? Or dead. Or dead. And there were a few deaths. So, uh, you know, by the end of October, so this ban went into effect in early October, by the end of October, uh, if you read the Golden Transcript articles, they're, they're fairly crowing, and the mayor is, you know, writing about, you know, we can't we can't let our guard down, but it looks like we dodged this bullet. So it's late October, you know, things are looking good. We've had a, a couple of cases, but not nothing too much. Um, and Denver raised its ban, interestingly enough, at midnight on November 10th. So come November 11th, the Denver ban was lifted, right? And that's of course Armistice Day, and so everyone pours out into the streets to celebrate. Golden lifted its ban that same day, kind of following Denver's lead, I'd say again. And, and even if you hadn't lifted the ban, people were going to go out and celebrate, right? And, Den and Golden here, it was 1.30 a.m. when we got the news that the armistice had been signed, and people started out in the streets building a bonfire and uh, firing off firecrackers and stuff, and it, and it was said that pretty soon no one in the town could be sleeping, so everyone came out to celebrate the end of the war. But, of course, this was now a nice big major, you know, uh, intermingling of people in, in fairly close proximity, even if it was outside. So both Denver and here, suddenly there was a resurgence in early November of the flu. And so Golden did not dodge the bullet, as we thought we maybe had. And so shortly we reinstituted a ban on public meetings, just like Denver did on November 22nd. Um, and... Uh, during this later outbreak of the flu, it was a much more serious issue for the city of Golden. First one floor, then all of the armory was turned into an emergency hospital for uh, uh, anyone that was sick with the flu. And um, uh, it was being run by the Red Cross. And um, 
that ban stayed in effect until shortly after Christmas. It was noted that suddenly, like our new cases, just stopped. They plummeted right after Christmas. And so our ban was lifted on January 4th, 1919, here in Golden. Um, Gunnison, Colorado, is another uh, interesting story, but from the uh, other side. And uh, one of the values of doing research on things like this is you can learn new acronyms like NPI, or non-pharmaceutical intervention. And so there was a nice little study done of Gunnison because this was a town that hmm, dodged the bullet, kind of. Uh, so there was early coverage of the influenza in the Gunnison papers, pretty complete, kind of uh, unusual, very complete. It was uh, the first article appeared on September 27th, and it was on the front page of the Gunnison News Champion in every weekly edition through the fall of 1918 to January 1919. So they gave it a lot of coverage, and they, had, they said things like, this is not to be ignored. This is a very serious illness, you know, blah, 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 things that other papers never said, you know. You, you, you see what we have in the golden transcript, by war bonds, you know. Yes, there's influenza, but by war bonds. Um, Similar to Golden, Gunnison also instituted a meeting ban on October 8th, so a day after we did, two days after uh, Denver did. And um, uh, they also were following guidance from the governor that had come out earlier. Schools were closed and public distancing measures were put in place. You know, the movie theaters were closed, et cetera, et cetera. Unlike Golden, on October 31st, Gunnison instituted a strict quarantine, not just for the city but for the whole county. And so they had roadblocks up, they had signs up, the, road, the railroad went through Gunnison. If anyone stepped off the train onto the platform, they were going to be put in quarantine for two days. And um, they did arrest people, they did uh, put people in quarantine. So it was a very strict measure, the, you know, there was very little commerce with Gunnison. Um, so, uh, and, and cars, couldn't stop in town. They could pass through, but you couldn't stop. And if you did stop, again, you'd be put in quarantine for two days. So there were just a few cases of the influenza in Gunnison in the immediate area. Schools were reopened on January 20th, 1919, uh, but it was not mandatory that people attended because they were concerned that families would still be worried that their kids would get sick, you know, come in contact with other people. So the schools were reopened. Three months, you know, nearly the schools were closed. And um, uh, they finally lifted the quarantine on February 5th, 1919, and it was fairly effective. And that's why Gunnison was used as a little case study in recent CDC studies on non-pharmaceutical interventions. However, do you remember there was that third wave of the flu in the spring of 1919? That one got Gunnison, because they didn't have strict quarantine measures as that third wave was kind of occurring. And so in March 1919, the third wave of the flu hit Gunnison. They had about 100 cases of the flu and five deaths, a town of about 4,000 people. And so that's kind of what I have on the great influenza. We're going to take a quick break, and we will come back for Q&A. I also wanted to point out this very special table and thank very much the sponsors of the very special table. This is how we raise money to give gifts to our speakers and um, otherwise keep this show on the road. And so Frank and Barb, in addition to everything else they do for Beer Talks, um, sponsored this table as well. 
So, anyhow, we'll come and, back for Q&A in a few minutes. And, and if you guys present, you could get a t-shirt like this. We're going to further enlighten ourselves. But it's more generally right. Trying to get people to stop talking here. All right. We're going to further enlighten ourselves with some Q&A. Oh, good. Thank you. So here's Frank. If you would, please give Frank a second after you ask your question so he can repeat the question, and then it's really beneficial to the podcast listeners so they know what the question was. Here we are. All right. We have a question. The question is, what was the name of Northwestern's team before the way they were the Wildcats? And I don't know. The Fighting Methodists. <laughs> and and well, purple and white was it, were their colors at the time, so there's a tie with the great influenza. Purple death. <laughs> yes? What the term pandemic is not, that term was not in use in 1918. Was it not called the Spanish flu? It was called the Spanish flu. And, and why? That, that is a good question. So I need to repeat the question. So, uh, and the question was that the term pandemic was not in use in 1918, and I, I didn't know that, and wasn't it termed the Spanish flu, and why? So it was called the Spanish flu uh, by many parts of the world, uh, but I'll point out that in Spain, in fact, they called it the French flu. <laughs> and there is a reason for this. So uh, the flu... There was that spring wave in 1918, right? And in fact, um, uh, you know, the Germans were mounting offensives through March uh, to July of 1918. And General Ludendorff, one of their head generals, you know, when he was asked to explain the failure of their offensives, especially the, July, the last ones, July 1918, uh, he cited the, the flu as one of the reasons, because a lot of his young men were sick or dying from the flu. And the same thing was happening, you know, the trenches, you know, no man's land wasn't very wide, right? So the men on the other side of the trenches were also dying. So at times, uh, the lines were lightly held at, at different times in different places. So the warring nations really, just like the United States, didn't want a lot of um, uh, uh, coverage of the flu. So again, it was kind of downplayed. It wasn't talked about a lot. Uh, in Britain, they had true censorship, and so stories were censored. Here we had voluntary censorship, which amounted to much the same thing, but um, so it wasn't covered well by the warring nations. However, it did get into Spain from France, hence the Spanish calling it the French flu. And um, on May 28, 1918, the Spanish king came down with the flu. He was 32 years old, so a perfect age to have a really bad illness, and he did. He was gravely ill for a while and I guess I don't know how long that was either but he was gravely ill, his prime minister came to ill, a number of other people in the government ministers also became very ill, but the Spanish were a neutral power, they weren't in the war they didn't have a dog in the fight and so they reported on the flu copiously and they had they had, um, you know, if you will celebrities, sick, you know, the king is sick with the flu, so they had a lot of coverage of the flu, so a lot of countries and a lot of people won thought it started in Spain because there was so much coverage in Spain, or two, that it hit Spain disproportionately hard. But they were just one of the many impacted nations, and I've never read that it was particularly hard hit 
and Spain is one of the few countries that I haven't heard cited as a possible source for the flu, you know, for where it started. So it was called the Spanish flu, though, by much of the country. Also in, in Europe at the time, apparently a, a term that they used as opposed to Spanish flu was the Spanish lady. And so then people had cartoons that they could have in their papers of the Spanish lady striding across Europe. And you can imagine how she looked. <laughs> yes? They really weren't. There was city after city that put the gauze... Oh, I'm sorry. All right, so the question was, were the gauze masks effective, and if so, why? And the answer is, gauze masks were implemented in a lot of different cities, and they weren't, they weren't really found to be very effective. You know, the, the flu is actually caused by a virus, and so the gauze masks are like, you know, a huge mesh compared with a little tiny virus. And so they... Some people even think that they might have been harmful in some cases. But I, I was going to say, you know, they probably didn't hurt, and it gave people something to do, but there were also uh, a lot of people that complained about them. Like in Denver, when they first instituted this gauze mask requirement, uh, you know, and, and apparently, you know, they, they were interviewing people, so, you know, you're supposed to be wearing a mask, why aren't you? And, you know, it's like, well, you know, I'm not being protected by the health department of the state of Colorado. I have a higher authority that's protecting me. Uh, or my nose went to sleep, you know. I mean, uh, there were a number of reasons, but no, they, they really weren't effective. City after city implemented them, and met, almost all of them had massive outbreaks of the flu. And it's, um, you know, a gauze mask. First of all, it'd have to be very tight on the face, and most of them weren't. And then even the gauze was just way too coarse to really uh, filter out viruses. And, yeah, I've, I've seen some people say, you know, they were probably harmful because... Uh, it could have concentrated things, and, you know, with all of your breathing, they'd be moist, and if you used them day after day, it, it could actually cause problems. And when they instituted it in Denver, there weren't enough masks for everybody. You know, when, when, this, the, when this rule went into uh, place in late October, uh, the Red Cross didn't have enough masks, and they were, you know, they were uh, very much, you know, we're working to get more masks made and get them out for the people. Um, but... It gave people something to do, and it, it looked good, I guess, but weren't really effective. Yes? Was there much written about any groups to kind of help beyond, I mean, it sounds like the Red Cross was trying, but like religious groups, or, I mean, it just sounds like people were floundering. Yeah, um, yeah there, there wasn't good preparation for the flu, even as people saw it coming in most cases. You know, there were minimal effects. Uh, there were a few instances where people did sort of, you know, like, like uh, leading citizens in some of the cities did, you know, uh, take efforts in some places, including Philadelphia. But they, they put some measures into effect, but it was so bad in Philadelphia that they were overwhelmed. Uh, St. Louis was, was interesting. They got a lot of people to volunteer like nurses, and they organized like a, 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 a motor pool and they went and visited people at their different homes and, and things to make sure that they were getting some, you know, nutrition and water and stuff. So there were uh, places where that was done, but it was very much a local, local thing, kind of like Gunnison and, and the county of Gunnison putting in the strict quarantine. You know, it was, a lot was left at the local level. Um, and, a, and a lot of the places, you know, like in Denver when they had the uh, uh, public meeting ban and then they took it away, and then when they were bringing it back in mid-November when there was this resurgence of uh, uh, cases of the flu, 
there was an outcry from the people that had the movie theaters and you know all of the public meeting places because of course they were losing money and stuff you know the the um, the economy was kind of was significantly impacted by the flu so there was also pushback against some of these measures as well yes What percentage of people actually got the flu? And that, that's a good question. I, I don't have a good answer. Like worldwide, it was estimated that about 700 million people got the flu. I don't know. Yeah. I think it was 50% of worldwide. Okay. So, so one of the audience says about 50% of the worldwide population. And it was widely variable. Yes, 50%. It, it, yeah, it was it was uh, extremely contagious, and it was widely variable. You know, um, uh, Native American populations in Alaska were severely hit. There were whole villages that died. They weren't huge villages. You know, they weren't Denver's, but um, they had a very high death rate too associated with the flu, like eighty-five percent in in many communities. So it was widely variable. Um, the poor were disproportionately hit. You know lack of nutrition, you know, probably poor conditions in general. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure, but 50% could very well. I don't know what the population was. I work at the Colorado Children's Oh. Okay. Question. So the question is, what what can be done to prevent the flu today? What would be the recommendations and perhaps lessons learned? Yes. Um. <laughs> uh, so I I will certainly go with vaccination as one of the uh, uh, chief ways to fight the flu. And the vaccines that we have, you know, they're not 100% effective because the flu is always mutating and changing. Uh, but even if they're 40% effective, that's four out of every 10 that aren't going to get laid low by the flu. So there's vaccinations, and then there's uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions like strict quarantines uh, and washing your hands. And if you uh, will all recall a few years ago, I don't know, four or five years ago, uh, the CDC put out during flu season that you should not be sneezing into your hands, right? You should be sneezing into your sleeve. And so that's certainly something that I've been trying to do. Um, you know, the, the gauze masks aren't effective. So I would say uh, vaccines and, you know, um, washing your hands frequently and often. And, and, you know, it can be transmitted from your hands to your eyes if you rub your eyes, you know, to your mouth, to your nose. So, uh, yeah, non-pharmaceutical things are fairly effective in preventing um, transmission of the flu. Do you have anything else to add? A massive number of cases. 
Yeah, as an engineer, you know, you, you, you need to make your decisions based on data. And some data is good, more data is better. And you need to believe in technology and, and scientific things. So I'm certainly in favor of vaccinations. I think that they've been hugely valuable. And I'm sort of here being somewhat embarrassed because I remember making myself a commitment that I would go get my flu vaccine before I gave this talk, and I haven't done it yet. So I apologize to you. <laughs> well, I, if, we, if we get out of here and get to... <laughs> Mr. Fred Linton. Um, strains of flu. I was surprised to hear that there was just primarily one strain from 18 to 55. Um, Am I right about that? Yeah, that was All the right. primary type of flu, you know, changing from year to year a little bit, but that was the dominant strain flu until, uh, until a big pandemic in the late 50s, I think 1957, 1958. And then that was, that was an H1N1 flu from 1918, and I forget what it was replaced in 1957, but uh, then that one was dominant through for a number of decades. So yeah, there have been um, dominant flus, flu strains uh, for different periods of um, History. Seems as though now there are a multitude of strains, and you have to, you know, identify a vaccine that is going to be attacking the most predominant strain. I don't know if there's multiple strains. Actually, our, our uh, guest here might know more. Uh, there seems to be a predominant strain, and the one that we're dealing with right now uh, varies quite a bit. So it's it's difficult to make a good vaccine for it. Yes. So did the yeah. pandemic um, uh, affect mostly the northern hemisphere? No, it, it affected the whole world. Right. So it, it pretty much got everywhere. You know, there were limited communities like kind of Gunnison that temporarily delayed the uh, influence of the flu, but it did get everywhere. And, and to summarize the previous discussion, just for the record, was that um, uh, it, it was asked about making vaccines for the flu and how to do that, and aren't there multiple strains? And generally, there is a predominant strain uh, that does vary. And generally, like in North America, we're looking in the uh, southern hemisphere to see what might be happening in the northern hemisphere come the next flu season. And I assume probably in the southern hemisphere they're doing the same thing, trying to predict what's going to be predominant every year. Uh, but the, the strains do kind of change, and so it's difficult to get it exactly right. So it's not an exact science getting the vaccines made uh, beforehand. So it's an inexact science. And 
But even so, if, if you get it, uh, a vaccine that's 20% or 30 or 40% effective, it can uh, avoid a huge number of illnesses. Yes? So the question was, was this strain of flu um, particularly uh, contagious because of the flu itself or because of the movement of soldiers, uh, et cetera, uh, associated with World War I? And to be honest, it was a combination of both of those uh, effects. It was a highly contagious flu, more contagious than normal, let's say. Uh, and the previous strains of flu were different. So the immunity that's typically associated with having the flu uh, for the previous flus weren't effective against this one. So it was the whole world was basically a population at risk. And because of the war, there were a lot of very bad conditions. You know, there was poor nutrition in many areas of the globe. There was chaos in many areas of the globe. So again, you know, Russia was going through a revolution in 1918, and it was hugely chaotic there as well as other places. And so it was a combination of factors that contributed to the lethality of the flu, but a major part of it was the flu itself. It was a particularly lethal strain and a particularly contagious strain. And they've, they've done research to try to fully understand it, and they've got good hints and you know some good understanding of the flu, but to say that we 100% understand everything uh, would be an overstatement. You know, um, uh, you know there, there are people that think those three different... Um, waves of the flu were actually possibly three significantly different flus. Most people see it as one that changed a bit, but, you know, there's, there's not 100% agreement on everything. More questions? Yes. What did mines do? Um, no. Uh, I, well, actually, probably they did close the school when the government issued, or when the governor issued the order, because that was, it did include schools. So that order on October 16th did close schools. Um, and that was, you know, very disruptive because, again, you know, like people that would be going to work and their kids would normally be in school. Um, and, you know, School of Mines was quite involved with uh, World War I with, you know, basically the predecessor of the ROTC program. And I don't really know, Tracy. Uh, and the question was, what did the School of Mines do in relation to the 1918 flu? And, and I actually don't have a good answer for you in any sort of detail. But that's a good question. Um, and, and I'll get back to you on it. <laughs> So my friend Rick Goad asked if Rocky Flats is safe, but he knows that I have an opinion on this subject because I worked there on the cleanup. And I will say that it's one of the most environmentally characterized pieces of earth or pieces of earth on earth. And I would say it is clean or uh, it's safe. It was not a clean closure of the plant. And I have gone there and recreated since the National Wildlife Refuge was open to public recreation. And I will go there again. I did not go there this past weekend, but maybe next. And um, there are data. Some data is good. Lots of data is better. 
There's lots of environmental data on Rocky Flats, and a lot has been done to characterize the plant and to ensure a safe cleanup. And there was also an $18 million health reconstruction for off-site dose associated with the plant, looking at uh, off-site risk associated with Rocky Flats that was published, you know, in what, 2003 or 2004, 2005, multi-year study where they dug up a lot of new data, and they came up with a very good understanding of um, off-site dose associated with the plant. So, yes, I think Rocky Flats is safe, and it's well monitored even now, continuously. More questions. How about on the flu? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, one, one more. Yes. The, the question was, if someone is sick with a cold but doesn't necessarily know it, coughs into their hand, opens a door with that contaminated hand, and someone else comes along who's healthy and grabs a doorknob and then rubs their eye or, you know, um, puts their finger in their mouth, uh, can they get sick? And the answer is yes. And so that is one of the things uh, that CDC emphasizes, you know, is... Uh, washing your hands to prevent uh, transmission of the flu. Uh, yes, uh, yeah, viruses can live for a while outside the human body. Um, and, and I think it varies, but yeah, they can live for quite a while. So that is a mode of communication of uh, influenza. Yes, coughing into your sleeve prevents, you know, moving it onto all of the objects that you touch. More questions? Yes. So the question was about, uh, let's say, uh, overprotection and not being exposed to many things and being overly protective, which could make us more susceptible to different diseases. And, and, and I think that's, that's a reasonable concern, and, um, uh, and I don't have a good answer. Uh, I'll, I'll just say that, you know, um, taking risk is kind of like getting up every day, right? So... You know, I'm not saying go out and be exposed to cholera and try to be uh, sick with cholera, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I sometimes think that we've got too much protection against different things, you know, that we're trying to make a zero-risk society, and we just can't get there. You know, just getting up is uh, a hazardous proposition every morning. So I, I don't have a good answer for you, but I think it's a reasonable concern. And, and another question... Well, yeah, no, they aren't really alive. You know, like, um, so 1918, um, they they had the light microscope and bacteriology and microbiology was sort of a very active field, uh, but light microscopes can't see a virus. And bacteria are alive. They, they are, they're, they're alive, but a virus is not. A virus isn't 
like it, it isn't a chemical, uh, but it's not alive either. Uh, and it takes over cells to replicate itself. It takes over genetic code to replicate itself. So it's somewhere in between. And then there are some that are even between viruses and bacteria, like rickettsia. So um, uh, no, they're not alive. But they can be deadly. I'm sorry? That, yes, viruses have to have a host to replicate themselves, but they are not alive. And in fact, viruses were, their existence was conjectured in 1918, but it was confirmed in the 1930s. So, so they, they were looking for vaccines in 1918. Lots of people were spending lots of time on it, but they were uh, focused on non-causative agents you know, like secondary infections and things like that in 1918. So with that, are, are we, thank you. Next, next month for our speaker, we have the executive director of the Colorado Freedom of Information Coalition. He was originally scheduled earlier this year, and he ended up getting the flu. And so, <laughs> in, in timely fashion, he will be back, and he is well-heeled, and we will see him in December. Uh, gratitude again for Wendy Saddle. If you have stuff on your table that you have time to bus over to the bus bins, that would be awesome.